Welcome to the Next Level Soul podcast, where we ask the big questions about life. Why are we here? Is this all there is? What is my soul's mission? We attempt to answer those questions and more by bringing you raw and inspiring conversations with some of the most fascinating and thought-provoking guests on the planet today. I am your host, Alex Ferrari. I've always wanted to help the audience take their soul to the next level, so I've partnered with Mind Valley and other amazing free courses on spirituality, mind, body, soul, longevity, wealth, and so much more. All you need to do is go to nextlevelsoul.com forward slash free. Disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of this show, its host, or any of the companies they represent. Now, today on the show, we have near-death experiencer, Rosemary Thornton. Rosemary is a suicide survivor and was dead for 10 minutes when she went over to the other side. And what she saw is quite remarkable. Let's dive in. I'd like to welcome to the show, Rosemary Thornton. How are you doing, Rosemary? Hi, how are you? I'm good, my dear. Thank you so much for coming on the show and and sharing your journey with all of us. So my very first question I have for you is what was your life like prior to your near-death experience? That's a really good question. You know, I've done about 75 of these and I hear pretty much the same questions, but that's a good question. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I met him, I met my second husband in 2006 Mm -hmm. And I was so grateful to find him. I'd been through a messy divorce, had five years of living single, and I had some success as a writer. I'd written mm -hmm. books on architectural history. And in fact, uh, after our first date, uh, my one of my stories, because I, I, had, I had good publicity, one of my stories about one of my new books was written up in the Wall Street Journal. Above the fold, no less. No. So I was very proud that it looked like this happened all the time. You know, <laughs> here's this new young, this new fellow I'm trying to impress. And I say, I was in the Wall Street Journal today, mm -hmm. above the fold. Yeah. He was like, wow. <laughs> so he and I were married 10 years, and I thought it was a good marriage. In fact, in my wedding vows, I, thank, I thanked God for bringing him into my life answer to a lifetime of prayers. My first marriage had failed after 24 years. And as anyone who's been through a divorce can tell you, that's uh, that's hard when you put mm -hmm. your best energies, efforts, and prayers into a marriage and it failed. So I really thought happy days had arrived, really and truly. I thought all those hard years were over. And then uh, uh, after about nine and a half years of marriage, uh, came home for lunch one day and ended his life. And as a sensitive soul and a writer, to say I was devastated would be an understatement. But we mm -hmm. had a good life. In fact, there are times that I was prone to sadness, typical creative type you know, ruminate mm -hmm. over everything, think too much all the time. Mm -hmm. And he would frequently tell me we have a good life. You know, look at all the wonderful blessings we have in our life. And for him to do this uh, for about two and a half years, I just, just lost my mind. And I learned mm -hmm. how to, in the vernacular of the day, I learned how to mask. I learned how to pretend to be fine because nobody wants to be around somebody who's like, oh, my life is awful. So I learned how to I, I liken it to the Romulan cloaking device from Star Trek. Are you familiar yes, with that? Of course I am. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, look, we all put a little bit of Romulan cloaking devices on all of us most of the time. Like, hey, how are you feeling? Is that, is that, how's you, how are you going? How are you feeling is, is a thing that you say to everybody. And you always say, fine. 
but never really fine, are you? Generally, <laughs> so we all put a mask on, but you really had to put on not only a mask but a performance to really cloak what was going on inside. That's the right word. It was a performance. In fact, I'm kind of fascinated. Well, I love words. I'm a writer. Uh, the word uh, personality comes from the Latin word for mask. Mm-hmm. So our personality is often just something we don to survive in this world. But yeah, it took a lot of energy to man- maintain that. And as you know, from the Romulans, they can't fire when they have the cloaking device. On That's very true. So much energy. That's very <laughs> true. You cannot attack while cloaked. <laughs> <laughs> So I thought we had a good life. So yeah, this this blew things up. And you know, I, I learned so much. I guess I used to be one of those people that was afraid of the homeless. You see them out, they look unkempt and smell mm-hmm. funny, and you know, they have the scary look in their eyes. And I one of the great blessings, if you could say that, from this experience was in fact, just about six weeks ago, I saw a woman not much younger than me out in front of a big cathedral in uh, central part of Illinois, and she had a sign up that said something like, you know, need a few more dollars for food or something. So I went over to her and I said, my name's Rose. What's your name? And she said, uh, she gave me your name. And I said, Terry, how did you end up here? What What's going on? And she said, my son killed himself. And I don't know what to do. She said, I used to have a, a good job. I drove a BMW. I lived in a beautiful house in a beautiful neighborhood. And she said, I lost my mind. And I lost my health insurance, which is what happens to people like that. And can't even afford a psych ward after that. And she said, now I'm out on the street begging. Don't know what to do. And she said, nobody wants to talk to me anymore. And that's what happens. People get tired of hearing the sad stories. But what they found out about trauma survivors is we have to tell the story over and over and over again, typically for two to three years, just just to to sort it out in our own heads. So I have found that. and, And I gave Terry a little bit of money and told her I would pray for her. And I did. But I can't tell you how many homeless people I've encountered that the story begins with my mother killed herself. My husband killed himself. My daughter killed herself. That American Psychological Association came up with an assessment that said losing a close loved one to suicide is one of the most severe traumas a human being can know. And yet in this country, we don't know how to deal with people. I mean, my husband was a successful professional. I was a writer who had some success. We had lots of fancy friends had big parties and lived in a lovely home. And after his death, man, those folks were gone. Those folks Mm -hmm. all disappeared. And even now, seven and a half years later, I'm not in touch with one of those people. And yet the people who rushed into the fray were what we would call the working class. They were the people who didn't have much, but they knew pain. And they had the inner strength, which I think I finally developed. They had the inner strength to deal with somebody with as much pain as I was facing. And that's uh, that is the blessing, if you can call it that, that comes from an experience of this magnitude is you learn, uh, well, you know, another quick example. I know this is not what we're talking about, but I sure. ran into a, I went to a Christmas party, traveled a thousand miles to go to a Christmas party with a lonely friend. He was alone and didn't have anyone to spend Christmas with. So I went up there. And after we ate the the host, the hostess of this fancy soiree was standing at the kitchen counter, uh, kitchen sink doing the dishes, and she was sobbing. And I saw everyone gathered around the table was kind of looking at her like, what do we do? The hostess is up there sobbing. And I looked at her and I thought, man, I can't watch that. And I got up and I walked over to her and I put my hand on her back and I said, "Um, what's going on? What's wrong? She said, you wouldn't understand. I said, well, I might not, but tell me. 
you know, sometimes the burden shared is halved. I do believe that. Mm -hmm. And she said, she said, my husband killed himself five years ago. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I oh, had no geez. idea. Sure. I had no idea. Wow. <laughs> and she said, he and I had an argument and he went out to the front porch and sat down and, uh, uh, you know, used a gun. And she said, I can't face holidays anymore. She said, I try. I put on these big fancy parties. You know, I make sure all the silverware is just right, but I can't deal. And I smiled at her and I thought it's kind of inappropriate to smile. And I said, oh, golly. I said, I understand better than you think. <laughs> and I told her my story very briefly. And she she smiled. And then before long, I said something perhaps borderline inappropriate to her. I said, these men can really screw you up in the head, can't they? Except I don't think I use the word screw. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and she laughed and she said, that's what he yeah. did. Yeah. And I felt so comforted. And then I was able to just, you know, kind of hang out with her for a bit. So it's funny how many, funny is the wrong word, uh, coincidences are miracles where God chooses to remain anonymous. I think I'm Synchronici synchronicities, synchronicities, if you yeah. will. Yeah. Yeah. So I know that that was the right place for me to be. Wow, that's pretty remarkable. So it seems that, so before the near-death experience, were you coping? Were you, or were you still kind of in that lost space before? I had three, that's a good question. I had three daily prayers I prayed every day because I believe in persistence. You know, the Bible tells the story of the the man who comes to, uh, uh, I can't remember, I think it's this, uh, the judge's house. And begs and begs and begs and begs and won't go away. Actually, it's a woman, I think, goes to somebody's house and begs and begs and begs and won't go away. And finally, the judge says in desperation, all right, all right, all right, I'll give you what you want. So I'm a big fan of persistence, but I prayed three prayers every day. One was I asked God, heal me or let me die. I, I felt dead. I felt like my soul was black, blackened out, that there was no light left in my soul or my heart. And I just felt like I might as well be dead because I'm dead mentally and emotionally and spiritually. And then the second prayer was, uh, I asked that when I do die, because I knew it wouldn't be long, <laughs> that there'd be no life review. I had seen what happened to me after my husband's death, and I lost my mind, and I was an embarrassment. I humiliated myself in many, many ways. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, so I said, God, please, when I die, spare me that. Because I'd been a big fan of NDEs. I'd read pretty much every NDE book I could get my hands on before oh. my experience. Okay. And then my third prayer was... Uh, Decision fatigue. There were some legal messes that had to be dealt with after my husband's death, and there were a lot of very hard decisions that had to be made involving attorneys and such. So I asked God, spare me these decisions I can't handle anymore. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So, uh, in fact, I had a financial advisor take me aside and she said, so, Rosemary, where do you see yourself in two years? <laughs> and mm -hmm. I said, without missing a beat, I said, I'll be dead. I'm not going to survive this. In fact, at one point, I went to a family member and said, I'm, I'm dying. And not to be melodramatic, but I'm not going to survive. I'm circling the drain. I'll either die by my own hand or I will, I will succumb to something. Mm. So I'm not going to survive this. And, and so many people don't know what to do when somebody says that. Oh, so anyway, that's yeah. where I was. And I, I was going out to lunch with friends and, you know, pretending. And, sure. you know, an interesting thing happened. I was at a, a fancy restaurant somewhere eating by myself on this particular day. But uh, somebody opened a, a door to my side and the wind caught the door and it slammed very, very hard. And it slammed so hard and it startled me. And I jumped up out of my seat and I yelled 
with children around and everybody else around, I yelled, what the F is wrong with you? And to nobody in particular, but it startled me so badly. Right. And I, you know, people were like, just gaping at me. And I, I left my, jumped up and ran out of the restaurant because I was so humiliated by him. But I was still pretty messed up. And then wow. 29 months into it, I'd had a bunch of physical symptoms, very disturbing symptoms, including um, some some bleeding and, you know, gynecological problems, blah, blah, blah. And I went to a doctor and I went to a couple doctors, actually I went to three, and I was diagnosed with cervical cancer stage two. And I said, you know, God, I was pretty clear on this. Heal me or let me go. I meant fast. <laughs> I didn't ah, mean from some lingering de illness. Details, details. You got to. <laughs> You're putting the order in. You got to be detailed. Yeah. <laughs> and during a related surgery, uh, somebody made a boo-boo. And then uh, I awakened from that surgery bleeding profusely. It, it had been a cervical biopsy. And mm -hmm. I awakened for, you know, in the recovery, bleeding a lot. And they uh, told an RN, I said, look, something's gone wrong. I'm 59 years old. I can tell you something's gone wrong. I'm bleeding. Once you get home and lay down, you'll be fine. So three times I protested. And three times she told me just to go home and lay down. And I did. And once at home, it was getting worse and worse and worse. And uh, I had a friend staying with me. And I told my friend, I said, call an ambulance. I'm bleeding to death. And uh, ambulance came, took me to another hospital, a little ER that was actually not connected to a hospital. And they made more boo-boos. And, uh, you know, I used to tell this in front of live audiences. Mm -hmm. And when I would tell the part where they gave me a morphine derivative as a drug, you know, did, uh, for, I don't know why, but they did. Everyone in the audience gasped because when a patient presents with dropping blood pressure and profuse bleeding, you don't morphine give, depresses morphine. it further. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> I even know that. Like, you don't give someone who's bleeding. Why don't you just get a whole bunch of aspirin while you're at it? I mean, <laughs> I mean, seriously. It really does kind of grease the kids to the afterlife, you know. I mean, you want to go faster. Here's some morphine. It'll just slow you, right? You guys go right down. Exactly. Wow. And I had never been in an ambulance and I get into this ER and this very kind RN about my age is attending to me. And I was so frightened because now I've made a decision. Okay, I'm I'm going to live. You know, I've I've agreed to go to the hospital. But I grabbed this RN's hand and I said, promise me you're not going to let me die. And she was so compassionate and so motherly. And she grabbed my hand, she squeezed it and got right in my face very, very sweetly, almost as a mother consoling a child and said, oh, honey, we're not going to let you die. We have many solutions for this. And then they gave me <laughs> the morphine derivative and away I went. And the thing is, to the onlooker, it was a pretty peaceful passing. And in my experience, what I was experiencing uh the thing is, it, it after they gave me that audit, I, I don't know the time. My friend was at my side. I'm on this gurney in a little cubicle in an ER. My friend said that uh, after they gave me the audit, I just passed right out. And, you know, the thing about that, it was actually Dilaudid morphine derivative. The thing about that is I didn't have much blood volume at that point. So that Dilaudid, you know, I don't know technically if I bled to death or if the Dilaudid was just the final blow to my little heart. It's mm -hmm. going, I need fluid. I need fluid. I and need you're giving fluid. me morphine. Then, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Let's finish her off. Uh, but my friend said he looked at the blood pressure cuff, which is, you know, inflating and deflating automatically. And the medical staff have left the room. And he said at one point it said 35 over tw or 33 over 25 nothing, as my yeah. blood pressure. Well, yeah. which just mean you're on your way out. And he stood up to go get help because I, you know, she's dying. 
And as he did, my eyes popped open. I don't remember this, but he said, you reached your hands up to heaven and, you know, wiggled your fingers almost like a child reaching for a, a parent and said something. And he said he got up and stood over me and looked right in my face. And he said, you looked right through me. You were talking to somebody that you could see and nobody else could. And, you know, there's a term for this. It's called terminal lucidity. Have you heard of that? Yes, I have. Yeah, often of, at the very end of I, life, we get a burst of energy. Yeah, there's. Um, I've, I've spoken to a few hospice uh, doctors who studied end at the end of life and that just to see what happens to people as they're going. And there's just that moment they just come up and they'll say something. And if you're, if in hospice, it's a lot, a little bit longer time for that. So they can see what's happening in dreams and people talking and who comes to you and they'll say things, but yeah, at the very moment you're like, it happens and then you're, and then you're done. And that's the end. (laughs) That's what happened next was I, I fell back on the gurney. I'd been trying to sit up, which is pretty impressive for somebody with a blood pressure of 33 over 25. But I, I fell back on the gurney and he said, and then you just went real still. And uh, meanwhile, I was having the time of my life. I felt myself awakening from what seemed like a deep dreamless state. And man, I was catapulted out of this body. And I mean catapulted, like toast out of a toaster. And I went flying off. And I remember thinking, I remember thinking about all those NDE books. Mm-hmm. But, but also there was just a knowing and I knew that I had died. And the first words out of my mouth in this new experience were, my heart has stopped. And then I thought, how do I know that? I thought, I don't know, but I know that's right. And I was floating away in blackness. A lot of people say, could you see your body? No, I couldn't see my body. And I really think that's God's mercy. Because I learned later, my friend, the, the medical staff did come rushing in when they heard the blood pressure alarm going off. And he said they ushered him outside into the, you know, wait outside the little room and brought a crash cart in. <laughs> He said, actually, it was kind of funny. The nurse came running into the room first, and he said uh, she did a sternal rub. Have you heard of that, where they take their knuckles and rake them over your sternum? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it, it elicits a pain response. If there's any life at all, you'll, you'll wiggle or jolt or something. But he said she did that for a minute and nothing. And he said, and then she... <laughs> She went over to the blood pressure cuff machine and checked the plug at the outlet. Like, well, this thing isn't working. It looks like she's dead. <laughs> and, wow. And then, you know, jostled the machine a little bit. Like, like hit it, on, like machine. hit it. Like hit it, put some aluminum foil at the top to make sure you got the reception. Uh, <laughs> kind of thing. Well, okay. So, all right. So, so other than the, the ridiculousness that's going on in your room as you're dying or dead. What happened when you got catapulted out? It was so fun. It was mm-hmm. such a great time. I was catapulted very dramatically. And that, and that was my first thought was my heart has stopped. And then as I'm floating in this perfect blackness, and I hear a lot of people talk about the love they feel. I would say the predominant emotion I felt was peace. In fact, mm-hmm. I, as a writer, I've always had high anxiety, you know, and I, I do overthink everything and just a little bit nervous all the time and mm-hmm. uh, a little bit neurotic, I might say. And I thought, this is the most perfect peace I've ever experienced. And I thought about that Bible verse, the peace that passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. And I thought, this is that peace. This is what mm-hmm. Paul was talking about is perfect peace that no words could ever describe. So I felt this peace. And then my next thought was, you're dying. And then being the ever appropriate writer, I thought, actually, you're not dying, you're dead. Because when you're floating onto your reward, getting the tense right is very important. 
And I thought that was funny. And I laughed out loud because I thought, here you are, dead, unexpectedly, I might add. And, and dealing with floating grammar. away from your body and dealing with grammar. And the beauty <laughs> part is I thought it was so funny. And I laughed out loud. And I heard my funny little giggle. And I thought, okay, I don't have breath sounds, don't have vocal cords, I don't think, don't know about ears. And yet I'm producing sound and I sound just like I've always sounded. And I started life in broadcasting. I might, I have a, I actually have training in broadcasting. So I know what I sound like. Mm -hmm. And I thought, this is great. Everything I am has gone with me. My macabre, goofy sense of humor, my silly little giggle, the sound mm -hmm. of my voice. And I thought, what did I leave on that gurney? And I realized the fear, the anxiety, the worries, the woe, everything negative was what I left behind. And what went with me was me, who I really am. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Interesting. So where did you go next? And that was very comforting, by the way. That was very comforting to know that everything I really am went with me. This floating went on for some time. And at some point in this blackness, I'm still floating further and further away. And the thing is, I had always had this inherent fear of the dark. And I remember thinking, I'm in pitch black. I mean, you know, kind of can't see your hand in front of you. And I thought, and yet I'm not afraid. So maybe I'm not really afraid of the dark. And very early on in this experience, I felt a massive presence join me. And I mean, massive. And he was, he, she was to my left and much taller than me. And I turned my head up and looked to the left to see him, her. And I thought, this is interesting. I'm turning my head to the left to look over my left shoulder. And I thought, so I have some sort of form, you know, I'm not just some ethereal spirit floating away. But I turned and I'm smiling because I'm like, wow, this is so much fun. All these in the ebooks I read, nobody told me how much fun this is, how just good you feel, how happy or how relieved, how relieved. And so I asked this massive spiritual being, I said, <laughs> literally with a happy smile, I said, and who are you? And the answer was before, again, before I could even finish the sentence, the question, the answer was immediate. You are the image and likeness. I'm the original. I was like, whoa, that's Genesis 1, 25 and 26. You know, we're made mm -hmm. the image and likeness of God. And I, my whole life, if I had to have one Bible verse that I never quite understood and always wanted to understand better, that would be that. I think that's what I get. How cool is that? How great mm -hmm. is that? There's an original. <laughs> so this went on. And at some point, still floating in this blackness, I felt the presence of what you might call spiritual beings or angels. But it was... They were welcoming me home, and it wasn't with words, but it was with a feeling like, she's back. She's mm -hmm. back. We're so glad you're back. And if I could sum up, the, sum up the entire experience in three words, it would actually be pretty easy, but it would be, welcome home, dearie. You know, my whole life I've been a weirdo and an oddball. <laughs> I've just been that kid that from the playground to career life just – different, you know, but it was like, these people got me and they were so glad I was back home. Mm. So glad. And that was so comforting that I, I was with my tribe, you know, and uh, it was like, they were saying, we know this was a hard one, but you're back. And I, I don't know. It's just so, so comforting. Comforting is the word, you know, mm -hmm. Irma Bombeck once wrote an entire essay on the word comfort and comfortable. She said, it's become a word we don't use much, but comfort is the, is a great word. 
So uh, a lot of things happened to me in this experience. One of them was uh, in while I'm still floating away in this blackness. I I remember thinking I've I've had this experience before. Like even in this lifetime, I've I've been through this before somehow. And one of the spiritual beings with me said, remember, your mom told you you were given up for dead as an infant. I was three weeks old and I contracted a disease and the doctors sent my mom home and said, this baby's dead. She's not going to survive another couple hours. And and yet the next morning, my mom went home and prayed that night. And the next morning when she came back in, the, the a nun, Catholic hospital, but a nun handed me over to my mom and said, this baby isn't better. She's healed. So the, the angels in this experience said, you didn't almost die that night. You crossed over then, and you were sent back. And I thought, that explains why I've been a weirdo my whole life, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember when people would die, and I'd say, oh, did you see Did you see uh, our aunt just walk through? She's mm. gone to heaven. She stopped through. And they, my mom, God bless her, would say, you didn't see that, and you're not going to talk about that anymore. So you learn early on to shut up, you know? Mm. You learn mm. early on to be quiet. So this was all kind of explained to me. And, and I do remember a predominant feeling because I was scheduled to start chemotherapy and radiation. It was, let me get this right. It was once a week chemo and it was uh, five times a week radiation. And I hadn't been in to get the, you know, the tattoos yet for the radiation, but I was supposed to start the, the chemo tutorial and then start chemo. And I remember thinking, don't need to worry about that anymore, do I? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, when you die, it kind of knocks out your itinerary uh, here down on Earth, without question. So when you're when you're up when you're up there, did you did did uh, did the did God listen to you, or did you have a life review? No life review, oh. which was great. And I, the thing is, I could remember because <laughs> my background is architectural history you know and i had a friend a really good friend who is a licensed architect and when i showed him the home i was buying uh on the east coast he said i don't think you ought to buy that home and i said why and he said well because there's no way to get a gurney in the front door it was a cool house had a massive fireplace right by the front door and he said there's no way to get a gurney in that house and i was like oh i'm never going to need a gurney you know blah 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 well I remembered in this death experience, the firemen trying to get a gurney in the house and they couldn't, couldn't. they couldn't get That's it funny. up the stairs and around the corner. So, but I remembered, I didn't have a life review, but I remember those firemen trying so hard because I was still conscious when I was taken out of the house. I remember right. them trying so hard to be helpful. And I thought, wow, they showed me so much love, you know, a total stranger. And I thought about how much love they showed me. But my predominant feeling really and truly was that I got early release for good behavior. I felt like I'd been somebody opened the prison doors and let me out. I did not want to go back. And this this just went on and on. And on. I mean, I read a book about it because it was a pretty mm. detailed experience. And then at some point, I don't remember the transition, but at some point I'm no longer floating, but I'm in a white room and I'm I'm on my feet now. I'm no longer floating, but I'm on my feet in this perfect white room. And about 15 to 20 feet in front of me is a door. And it was shut. I remember being a little disappointed that the door was shut because I thought, hey, I'm supposed to let's just go through that door and I, that door ought to be open for me. But as I'm walking through this white room and it was perfect white. And I observed that there were no light fixtures, no traditional light fixtures. It was just illuminated from within, mm -hmm. you know, cause you know, I'm looking for sconces, wall sure, fixtures, anything. Sure, 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 sure. but I had a spiritual being or an angel with me at this point, And I asked, 
one, there was this mist or fog in the room. And I asked about that. It was very, it was not just falling. It was encircling and very busy mist around me. And I asked the angelic being with me, I said, I feel like I ought to be able to focus on one of the individual droplets. And the angelic being said, your eyes are not acclimated to this new environment yet. So you can't see it. But what you're seeing, these are particles of light. And that when we go to heaven, we have to be cleansed of the muck. And that was the word that was used, the muck of earth, which is a word I just don't use much in everyday language, you know, but that the muck and the denseness and the heaviness of earth has to be washed. And this was like most akin to a spiritual car wash. Mm. And as my friend said, leave your muddy boots at the door. We don't mm. go to heaven with the the heaviness of earth. And the other thing that was explained to me very clearly was we have a spiritual identity. And sometimes we get so accustomed to these physical disease process that we think, you know, like, I am a diabetic. Mm-hmm. I have hepatitis. I have this. We we identify with a disease. And that the purpose of this was to, to strip that away and say, no, 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 that's not your identity. Your real identity is spiritual child of god that's who you really are and so that's it's kind of a reminder and the other thing somewhere is i'm walking because i see that door and i think okay i know the gig i I, everybody out of my way i'm doing the door you know there wasn't like oh what should i do (laughs) i'm like clear path 59 years old time served let me out and as i'm doing that one of the messages that was very clearly conveyed to me and I don't know at what juncture, because, you know, we, we want a cr- timeline. We want a chronology. You know, this happened first, and this happened in the middle, and this happened in the mm-hmm. end. But Einstein said, to those of us who are committed physicists, the past, present, and future are only illusion, however persistent. So while it looks to me like this thing happened and this and this, it's really hard to say. But at some point in that white room, I was told that if I agreed to go, or if I ended up going, not agreed, but if I ended up going back, that I would be restored to wholeness. And it wasn't said that you'll be healed of the grief, you'll be healed of this disease, but you'll be restored to wholeness. And and so I get to the door and I'm so grateful that I'm at the door and I don't even know by, I remember thinking when I'm first in this white room and see the door 15 to 20 feet ahead, I remember thinking, I don't know how if I have legs, but I know if I have an intention, I can perambulate toward that door which now cracks me up that I'd use the word perambulate, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think walk would have done, (laughs) but I didn't know. And I'm so disappointed that I didn't look down at my feet, my legs, my Mm -hmm. hands Mm -hmm. to see what I look like. Mm. But I've heard that from other people who've had this experience. So I get to the door. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And, uh, I go to put my right hand up to move through the door and uh, pretty interested by the fact right-handed on earth and right-handed in heaven, you know, mm-hmm. still mm-hmm. that that's part of my identity. But I paused and I asked the angel that, that was with me or a spiritual being, whatever. I said, is this the divine will for my life? And what I was going to say, is this the divine will for my life that a medical mistake sends me on to my reward? And before I could even get, is this the divine? The answer was again immediate. And the answer was no, no. But whatever you decide, you go with all of God's blessings and mercy and grace and love and care. Mm. And that was the answer to that third prayer or the second prayer that I can't handle any more decisions. I mean, this is a pretty big decision. Decide if you go to heaven or stay on earth. And I was told it's okay. 
And one of the things, one of the takeaways for me on this is if we are trying to do good, if we are trying to do the will of God, we're not going to make a wrong decision. Because even if we take the long way around the barn, mm. you know, we're going to end up back where we need to be. And I, it's been such a blessing to me when I'm faced with a hard decision. I think, oh, what do I do? What do I do? And I think, just listen, listen to God and the angels. And you're, even if you get it wrong, God can help you navigate out back out to the right path. So that was the answer is no, you know, but whatever you decide to do, you go with all the blessings. And so I thought, all right, I'm going, I'm, I'm done with this earth. I am so over this because one of the things about being the suicide survivor, as we are known, is that you become a, a 21st century leper. Nobody wants to be near you. You're scary. You know, mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many people at a visitation walked past the casket and said, I mean, closed casket, of course, and said things to me like, I'd just lay down and die if anything ever happened to my Bobby. Like, oh, you're right. I didn't love my husband as much as you love him. Got it. They have or, no idea you know, what to they, say. They have no idea what to say or do. Or they just, say the it, wrong thing. Well, yeah, and it's also, and it's also, I've had, I've talked to so many people who've gone through what you've gone through and then also losing children and, and, you know, I, and, and it, these are pains that you can't quantify. It, it, it's, it's something you cannot express or quantify. And people who have children or have a spouse, they automatically go to like, well, what happened if that happened to me? And then they just get scared and they have no idea what to say. And then they say something wrong. You know, like what <laughs> I was talking, I was talking to a trauma survivor the other day and he's like, yeah, they would just come in. They're like, ah, just get over it. Like I'm like what? Yeah. Like because they just truly have no arsenal of what to say to somebody who has gone through that. So th sometimes they, you know, yep. they try. Sometimes they're just like, I don't want to deal with you. Can you just move on? <laughs> like, <laughs> and like it's uh, all that. I know, and all that stuff they say became clear to me fairly early on in this process. All that stuff they say is for their comfort. Correct. They to make themselves comfortable. Yes. And there's yes. a guy who does grief counseling online who lost a beautiful teenage daughter to a disease. I think it was the flu or something. But um, somebody actually said to him, "If you hadn't gone, if you hadn't given her that cough syrup, she'd probably still be alive." Oh, jeez. They're not saying that to comfort him. They're saying that because they think, "Oh, I'll make sure I don't make that mistake." And the, the the thing, the one thing I will not answer on a podcast. There's a couple, but one is, uh, why did he do this? You know what? Doesn't matter. It's done. That's, he's dead. He's gone. And the end, yeah. Oh my gosh! I had one podcaster I threatened to disconnect on because he was like, "It's important to know." And I'm like, "No, it's you know not. That's him." That's <laughs> oh wait, horrible, he's dead. Horrible question to ask. My God, yeah, I'm prepared for it now. <laughs> I'm I mean, ready. For are you that. kidding me? That's irrelevant to the to the story. I mean, it truly is irrelevant to this. I'm a filmmaker. So as a filmmaker and a screenwriter, you kind of like, doesn't matter. It's called a MacGuffin. Like, it's like, it's just the oh. point. It, it's point of what moves the story forward in a narrative standpoint. Yeah. So I would never ask a question like that just as another human being. Like, what, <laughs> what are you talking about? So it's amazing. Uh, so, so you're in the room. So what so I was going to say, yeah, and I get to the door and I'm ready to push through and, you know, whatever you decide, you'll be richly blessed. I'm like, cool, I'm out of here. You know, you don't have to ask me twice. Yeah, you gave I me the get out of jail card. I'm going to go. That's yeah. right. And then, uh, and then I am shown a scene and to say it was people, I, I tried to call it a vision. I realized people are misinterpreting that. Like, you know, I had some dream in heaven, but what happened was 
I was in a room, like kind of mentally in this, uh, a silent observer in a room where this nurse who'd shown me such kindness is sitting on a little metal stool and she's surrounded by linens and hospital supplies and everything. She's in this little quiet supply room and she's leaning forward on the stool, head in her hand, sobbing uncontrollably. And I'm watching this. I'm like a silent observer. And it wasn't just a vision. I was in the room with this woman, you know, and and this was a potential future. This wasn't happening because they're busy trying to get my heart going again, you know, Mm -hmm. but she's sobbing and through her tears, I hear her say, I promised that woman I wasn't going to let her die. And I lost her. And I was like, oh, God, come on. Uh, this isn't fair. She looked at me about my age. She's 59. She's lost people before she'll get over it. You know, life goes on. <laughs> right. And then um, and then I didn't just observe her, but I felt that pain, I guess, in the solar plexus, that grief, that deep, haunting grief and regret and despair and self-recrimination, all the rest of it. And I recognize that as the same thing I'd felt because the last conversation I had with my husband before he did this was over the phone. We had a an argument that he started, which I've learned, by the way, for all suicide survivors, that's very common. It's like mm-hmm. they have to get their angst up to go through with the act. Sure. But um, I felt that same angst with her. And I remember thinking, if I can spare one human being that much suffering, I think I have to go back. And, you know, the, the wow. moral of the story is God knows his empaths. Mm-hmm. God knows mm-hmm. how to get us, you know. There you go. <laughs> so, sure. And, the, and I was, so what, I was like, so what happened? So what happened after you made so the decision? So cool is in a millisecond, I was, there was no backwards whoosh. There was no, you know, there was no rolling back. So I was back in that body in that ER. And uh, I was, I opened my eyes. I'm like, wait a second. And I remember being pretty tick because I thought uh, I died. That was a lot of energy involved to die. And I remember there was an angel in the upper left-hand corner of the room, just like a, a being of light. Honestly, it sounds crazy, but it was like an energy ball of light. And I could see that angel up there. And I said, mentally, I said to the angel, hey, I, was Robert's Rules of Orders. We had a first, we didn't have a second, and we certainly didn't have a discussion phase. I don't remember agreeing to this. And the angel just kind of, angels aren't real good about answering questions. The angel just kind of looked at me and said, hi, you're back. (laughs) And uh, very early on, I don't know the precise timing because I, you know, I had blood to death. Your brain activity slows a little bit when it doesn't have any blood or oxygen. But uh, that nurse was back in my face. I think it was the same nurse, but, you know, my eyes are open. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And the nurse says, what is your name? And I said, Rosemary. And she said, what year is it? I said, 2018. And she said, where are you? And I said, a crummy excuse for an ER. <laughs> but she kind of took umbrage at that. And she goes, have you know, this is an accredited facility. So uh, <laughs> I <mean> loaded. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> because the thing is, the thing that's really cool is I was dead well more than 10 minutes. And so you were clinically, so, so you were clinically dead. You were out for more than gone. 10 minutes. And I didn't find out about that till the next day at the hospital where they explained to me, yeah, your heart stopped. So, so that that was correct. I mean, I have documented medical evidence. My heart did indeed stop, but I was gone for more than 10 minutes. And the thing is, I interviewed, to write my book, I interviewed a lot of medical personnel. When uh, when you bleed to death, that so much that you your heart stops beating, because it's just a pump, you know, it ran out of fluid, they uh, plug the leak, refill the tank, and restart the heart. That's the order in which they do things. They cannot do CPR on somebody who's bled to death because it just forces more blood out of the system. Mm -hmm. So I was well more than 10 minutes with no blood supply to the brain. So when that nurse said, what is your name? I actually interviewed an anesthesiologist 
uh, about this because they have to make, they have to, doctors often have to make decisions about bringing somebody back or has it been too long. Mm-hmm. And he cried when I told him this story, when the nurse said, what is your name and all that. And I said, why are you becoming emotional? And he said, you have no idea how relieved the medical staff was when you responded intelligently to their questions. Because when you bring somebody back after five minutes, it's an iffy proposition. You don't know. The belief is that after five to six minutes, there'll be substantial brain death. And there wasn't. In fact, I think I got a serious upgrade. As my friend Brian says, I didn't come back as Rosemary V2. I came back as Rosemary V27. (laughs) Mm. But they loaded me in an ambulance pretty quick. You know, when you die at a little ER, they can't be like, oh, away you go. (laughs) Get out of here. Get out of here. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And then in the ambulance, they were afraid I died too. And I was taken to a trauma center. And there, I was there for several days. And my friend who observed this, he had been a Vietnam era medic. And he said, because he didn't see me again until they wheeled me out to the ambulance. And he said, you've heard the expression, white as a sheet. He said, you were literally white as a sheet. And he said, but your lips were dark blue and under your eyes was dark blue. So it was a pretty profound experience. And then I was at the hospital for several days and they took good care of me and uh, I was sent home and I wasn't really ready to go home because, you know, in the hospital, they bring you applesauce and jello and drinks and you say, I think I'd like a cranberry juice now. And boy, it's right there. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. But the doctor came in and that was the other interesting experience. After you bleed to death in a a big corporate hospital, uh, you get the doctor that's been around a while. (laughs) You Mm -hmm. don't get the doctor that, you know, might make a boo-boo here and there. You get the doctor has been around and he was very kind. And he's the one who explained to me that they thought I would have substantial heart damage because of the severity of my heart attack, which is technically what I died from was a heart attack. Mm -hmm. But I said, no, 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 don't don't need to worry about that. The angel said, if I agreed to come back, I'd be whole, whole and fine, fine and whole. And they still wheel you off for all the little tests, you know? And uh, the doctor, I remember every morning that nice, lovely doctor would sit down at my bedside and say, Mrs. Thornton, you're a very lucky woman. There's no damage to your heart whatsoever. In fact, your heart's very healthy, which did not, correlate with the first blood test that showed I'd had substantial heart damage from elevated enzymes. So this went on and on. And uh, they sent me home, not because it was time to send me home, but they said my white blood cell count was so low from having blood out that I was, well, the way the doctor explained it, which was very thoughtful. He said, uh, if you pick up an opportunistic infection from the hospital, he said, we won't be able to save you. So I was like, oh, I guess away we go. And then it took some time. I had to find another doctor. I went back to the original oncologist where I was supposed to start the chemotherapy. And he said, you're, you're, we're having our tutorial on Monday. And then a few days after that, we'll start you on the chemo. You know, a few days after you've recovered from this ordeal. And I said, well, actually, I was healed in heaven. And I was told if I agreed to come back, I'd be healed. And they, you know, they do this portal thing where they make your chart online, uh, make your chart yeah. available online. <laughs> he put in my chart, I was mentally ill. So, um, I had to go find another oncologist in another part of the state. (laughs) And that oncologist was a lot more interested in the fact that I had bled to death from a cervical biopsy than I was healed in heaven. It's all good news. But I did want an affirmation. You know, I wanted to be sure. And that second oncologist was very kind and very thorough. And there was another surgery. And she took lots of flesh from a lot of places and had it checked by multiple, uh, what do you call the people who do those biopsies, the lab people, anyway, multiple people, and even had them present in the operating room and sent off samples, blah, 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 blah. 
but she it, it all came back uh in fact what she told me she said is not only do you not have one cell of cancer anywhere that we've looked <laughs> she said but your flesh is so pink and pretty and perfect I wouldn't believe you'd ever had cancer had I not seen the original test. Because I don't know if you know, so once you get diagnosed with something like this, there's MRIs with contrast, mm -hmm. MRIs without contrast, PET scans, physical exams. And at the first doctor, I mean, the, re the thing that started all this is a lot of physical symptoms, a lot of very disturbing physical symptoms. Mm. And, uh, you know, I've already had people say all the usual stuff. Oh, you never had cancer to begin with. Well, that's not what three doctors said you know uh actually it's two doctors and a what do they call that a nurse practitioner it was visible upon examination now why would three people lie at three different offices you know so uh it's funny people come up with all these excuses you know occam's oh. razor the simplest solution is usually the right one. Oh yeah people can, because people, people can't believe that we're spiritual beings so that brings me to my next question so i i as you know, I've have spoken to, I think, nearly 100 near-death experiencers at this point in my show. And uh, a lot of times people, you know, the constant of, oh, they were just dreaming. Oh, it's some sort of liquid that went off in their head when you're dying. <laughs> um, all, all this kind of stuff. For, for the skeptic who's watching right now, because you actually are interesting, because one, you would have admitted to being a near-death experience you know, enjoying those stories. So you had an obscene amount of these stories in your mind already. One, two, you're a professional writer on top of this. You're unique. I've never had that happen before. So for everyone listening who might be questioning the validity of this experience, what would you say to them? Because you, I mean, on a, on a logical standpoint, you understand where I'm coming from, right? Oh, I do. I do. And my favorite is when people say, she's just in it for the money. Of course she wrote oh, a the book. book. Uh, <laughs> millions, right? You get millions, don't you, from the books? Millions. These people, I I have a co-author who wrote a couple architectural books with me, and we, we repeat that line and laugh ourselves silly. You know, oh, yeah, we're in it for the money. How much did we lose on that second book? Oh, we only lost five grand on that one. That one wasn't too bad. You no, know? That's the thing that everyone thinks. You may, I, I've published books, and I know, like, you make, look, if you self-publish, you make some money if you're smart and you have an audience, but- no one's retiring <laughs> on it. Publish picture books. No, no, no. Oh, no, no. Picture books are <laughs> way too expensive to publish yourself. So that's the thing. Yeah, people always use that excuse. Unless your last name is King, Patterson, or Rowling, you're not going to get super rich off of these things, generally speaking. Generally speaking. Well, and the other thing is, you know, the, the you're in it for the money. I love that one. Because one, I had, it was actually involved two mega hospitals, corporate owned mega hospitals were involved in the killing of Rosemary. You know, mm -hmm. if mm -hmm. I was in it for the money, I would have sued them to kingdom come. And I probably would have gotten a fair settlement, but I, I chose not to sue because uh, when you sue somebody, you're declaring war on an individual. And I didn't want that. I wanted sure. peace. And mm -hmm. the second thing uh <laughs> when I was being loaded into that ambulance to be transported from the little ER to the trauma center, I remember thinking, wow, my whole life I've spent reading about NDEs and this was nothing like any of them. I never heard about a white room. Now, subsequently, I've got a lot of emails from people saying, I went to a white room too. I've heard, but, I've, yeah, we've those, had, yeah, 
We've had her a couple of white rooms, but not like yours. But to the scoffers, I say, if I was going to write a book about this, I would follow the traditional patterns. I would not come up with all this crazy, you know, not so much love, but peace floating away, perambulate white room. I would have stayed truer to the original. And then the other thing, you know, this is just the brain shutting down. I hear that a lot. Okay. When I died, I had stage two cancer, visible upon physical exam. When mm-hmm. I came back, it was gone. Now that's not the brain shutting down. That's something divine. That's something spiritual. And then that's when people say, "Oh, well, you didn't have cancer originally," and "Oh, there must have this," right. because it's it, it's so fascinating. It's fascinating when I because I, I hear this all the time because of the people I interview. With I interview near death experiencers, channelers, um, even spiritual gurus, and and when they talk about miraculous stuff, they people just like they don't know how to talk to you because you're a suicide survivor. The same thing is like they don't know how to talk to you if this exists in the world because it completely disrupts their paradigm, their programming to the point where like, well, wait a minute, if there is a heaven, then that means wait a minute. Oh, oh, and and they start short circuiting. So either they attack you or they come up with something to make themselves feel better so they can go to sleep at night. So like I can't live in a world where there are near-death experiences because if that world exists, that means that there's bigger things in the world and that I'm really not who I am. And, and it just starts to spot, you start going down a rabbit hole of all of these things that just your foundation is disrupted. So that's why I think it people is. do that so much. And so one of the things that happened, and I remember this so clearly, I, I've read in multiple places, people say when they had an NDE, it was like waking up from a dream, you know, when yeah. they die, it's like, mm-hmm. and that was my experience when I, when I was floating away from my body, initially catapulted out of my body. I remember thinking, well, that 59 years sure went by in a flash. And I was like, this is reality. This experience I'm in now, you know, floating away from my body is reality. It really was like waking up from an intense dream. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's the best description I can come up with. But the scoffers, I've had so many scoffers and I get the emails too. I get either, you know, spawn of Satan. Um, oh, well, obviously this is demonic hell. work. Yeah, demonic work, obviously. That's a, that's a, that's a go-to, you're possessed, demons work. You can imagine when I have a channel on and they channel someone live on my show, they're like, that's the devil. I'm like, obviously it's the devil. Um, he's just talking about yeah, peace and love. Talks about. <laughs> right. The Bible talks about the fruit of the spirit. What have I done with my life? I sold off all my personal possessions. I sold, I had a fancy new shiny car I bought. I sold it. I bought a used Prius C. I don't know if you're familiar with the Prius oh, C. Oh, I know. But it makes oh, the know. Prius look like a Cadillac. Yes, <laughs> it's about I know. this big. <laughs> yes. uh, I got rid of most of my possessions, pretty much all of my furniture. And I moved a thousand miles due west to the Midwest because I like to watch corn grow. People laugh at that. I put it on my match.com profile. Let's just say my online dating profile. Yes. And I like to watch corn grow. I literally love it. You ever really watch corn? It's fascinating. I've seen, I, it is a pretty, I've actually not sat and watched it, but I, it is a pretty interesting <laughs> crop from where it starts to where it grows up to pretty quickly. It's pretty awesome. Yes. It is. I mean, take it's a little itty bitty seed. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And it's it's shoved into the ground, you know, it's just trounced into the dirt and it looks like all hope is lost. And then they, they give it a little, a little fertilizer, you know, they put more poo on it, you know, it's not enough to be trounced in the ground and now it gets poo on top of it. And then it gets soaked and then it springs forth. 
And I just, something about corn, I love watching things grow. And I mean, love, I mean, this thing changed me a lot. It changed, it, I had a, a neuroscientist travel from a nearby state to meet me and we went out and had a lovely dinner together. And she said, the reason she believes my story is not because of, you know, the cancer and it's gone and blah, blah, blah. Is she said human beings are not hardwired to change that quickly. The brain just doesn't switch from this way to that way in an instant. She said, but you did. Something profound happened to you to go from That's one, great, this deep man. grief. And, and the thing I was told in heaven about my husband's death, and, and this is probably the, the most important, which I, I you know, tend to forget, but I was told that everything that had happened around his suicide and all that misery had been encapsulated, which is a very interesting word. Yeah. And that's often what we use in architectural, uh, like if, if, if a house has a, a contaminant, you know, lead paint or other um, certain mm -hmm. white Asbestos. mineral. Yeah. 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 I don't even like saying the word, but that's what they do. They'll often encapsulate it because the process of removal can release more contaminants into the air. In some cases, when they try to do this in school buildings, they have to destroy the school building because it's just releasing it everywhere. But I was told that this whole misery, which is what it was, had been encapsulated and it was a thing and it had happened and it was there, but it couldn't hurt me anymore. And that was profound. That was explaining it to me in a way that I could understand. So that gave me so much peace. And I still cry over him and I still feel sad at times, but I'm not in the depths of hell anymore. You know, the Bible says, if I make my bed in hell, thou art there. I'd set up housekeeping in hell. I was just, I had settled into that. And this experience said, you're not going to get to stay in hell. You know, that's not, that's not what you're made for. That's not mm. where you're supposed to live. So it, it took me out of hell. So the, the healing of the disease process is very important. But, you know, Psalm 23, Psalm 23 says, he restoreth my soul. My soul got rebooted. My soul got restored. That's the real healing. And the thing I just, I mean, this happened five years ago, next month, this whole thing, the, the near-death experience occurred. The thing I just thought about in the last six months, because this, I don't remember anymore, but the experience con continues to unfold my body was on that gurney. Mm -hmm. It's my soul or my essence or my spirit that went to heaven. But that's where the healing happened. And when I went back to my body, the cancer was gone. So, I mean, it's not my body that got hauled up to heaven for a reboot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was my, my consciousness, my spirit, my essence, my soul. So I, I really believe, and I get in a lot of trouble for saying this too, but I really believe the next great frontier in medicine is going to be spiritual healing. I really do. Mm -hmm. I understand what you're saying. Um, now, Rose, let me ask you, when you came back out of this and you had this experience, it seems that you did not have any issue psychologically dealing with what had happened. Did you come out of the closet, start talking to everybody? Hey, guys, you know, this is what happened. <laughs> did you did you keep it quiet for a while before you kind of came out? Nah. No, it didn't sound I like did it. You were like, uh-uh, I've been waiting for this for a while. I'm going to talk to everybody, but I don't care if you listen or not. Because a lot of people hold on to it for decades sometimes because they can't process it. You seem to have been able to process this experience in that sense very, very easily. And you start yapping about it to everybody who would listen. <laughs> 
Well, in fact, several people said, are you going to write a book about it? I said, I've written nine, not going to be a 10th. You know, I'll share the story with people that it will help and bless, but there will be no 10th book. We are cooked and done on this book business. But yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't shut up. You know, I couldn't shut. And that is a neophyte mistake. You know, we all do that. And then I learned to be more circumspect. And then I did write the book, but I didn't write the book until I was sitting in church about six months afterwards. And in, I, I know this sounds crazy, but an angel appeared to me at the end of the pew and said, hey, where's the book? I mean, I thought the angels would be love and light and grace no, and gentleness. No, no. Yeah. And he was dressed like a warrior, you know, the sword and the the the, the fancy uh, warrior armor, uh, what do you yeah. call it? The protect. Yeah, the armor. Thank you. And he was like, hey, stop worrying about your pride and your physical, because I'd been having a tummy ache for several days. He said, stop worrying about your stomach and your pride write that book. And I was like, okay. So I went home and started on the book. But yeah, nice. I felt very directed. And so, you know, the book, the book is, I've, I've had a lot of good comments. If you go to, you know, the world's number one bookseller, the reviews are either this book was, has helped me so much or she's from Satan. Obviously. There's nothing in between. And you know what I get the most trouble for is using a feminine pronoun to describe God. Now, if, if I met the original in heaven in this experience, if I met the original and I'm female, why can't I say that God might have feminine qualities? But that's what produces the most ma the, the most email really? and response and upset. Really? Well, and you know why? PS, and I explain this in the book. My father abandoned the family. He was bad news, not a nice guy, blah, 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 blah. I think of God as father. I'm like, no, thanks. I think of God as mother. And I think, yeah. Well, it's that. because Michelangelo did not paint a woman on the Sistine Chapel. <laughs> There's an old white dude with a beard, and that's what everyone is holding on to. And also Charlton Heston uh, is Moses. Uh, but <laughs> but that's just the images that you uh, – it's, it's stuck with us throughout history because of that. Um, that's why Santa Claus looks the way Santa Claus does. But – Santa Claus, Saint Nick never looked like Saint Nicholas. Never looked like the Coca Cola, literally the Coca Cola marketing budget <laughs> that it was created. But uh, it's really interesting. And again, that's a, that goes back to what I said earlier: is when you rock someone's foundation of their programming, it really they fight, they slash out, or they comfort themselves in by whatever. Oh, that couldn't this or that. Because and that's what this show does is a general statement. It challenges people's foundations so often that people who are ready for it tend to listen to it, and people who aren't, it's the devil's work. It's the demons' work. It's just, you know, it's, just, <laughs> it's funny too. Some some of the stuff is hilarious. I read the comments; they're genius, really good writers. Uh, now, let me ask you: What is the biggest takeaway you got from this near-death experience in your life? This sounds trite, but we do take things too seriously. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and we really are. My favorite story, uh, St. John the Divine, at the end of his life, you know, he knew Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He was the last surviving disciple who actually walked the earth with Jesus. And people come up to him at the end of his life and say, what was it like, you know, walking with Jesus, talking with Jesus, shores of Galilee, what was it really like? And he would only say five words to them. Have you ever heard this story? Mm -mm. No matter what anybody said, what was it like, Jesus, what, what did he dress like? What were sandals like? Blah, blah, blah. He would only <laughs> say five words. And the five words were, little children love one another. And I think that's what we're supposed to do is we're just supposed to love. You know, it's so easy to judge. Judge comes from ego. Somebody told me years ago, ego stands for edging God out. Yeah. Yeah, that I heard, yeah. yeah, that's a great one. So I do yeah. think we are just supposed to be loving. 
And now when I see homeless people, I used to see homeless people think, get a job. <laughs> and now I see homeless people and yeah. sometimes I just cry. And usually, not usually, sometimes I talk to them. I kind of listen for, you know, am I getting a message here? But every homeless person I've talked to lost somebody to suicide. I'm sure that's just the angels saying, hey, 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 you, 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 go talk to them. Yeah, yeah. You're not the only one. Uh, essentially, like you can help somebody with what it's gone through. Now, I'm going to ask you yeah. a few questions. I ask all of my guests, Rose. Uh, what is your definition of living a fulfilled life? I don't know. When my kids were little, I have three girls. When my kids were little, when I would send them off to school, I'd give them a kiss on the head and I'd, I'd say a prayer that God would help them realize their full potential. And I think that's what we're all supposed to do is realize our full potential. I'm not sure the pathway. I think it's mm -hmm. just listening and uh, loving. I really do think we're supposed to love, love, love. Love to a fault. You know, if somebody loves, I just read a story. Fred, um, oh gosh, what's his name? I think his name is Fred Winter, a pastor 15 years ago, not far from where I live. Some crazy guy walked into his church and shot him and killed him. Now on the face of it, that seems like such a tragedy, but um, maybe that was, as a result of that, there's been a lot of awareness about Christianity and the problem of mental illness and all mm -hmm. kinds of kinds of stuff. And we say, oh no, what a tragedy, but what if, um, you know, what if that's just the gig? What if that's the cost of love as we have a few years shaved off our life? Mm. I think it's better than everybody being armed and chasing each other around the block with a knife. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. I guess what I'm saying, if if I, by loving somebody, if if I love somebody and my life ends what the world might call prematurely, I'm okay with that. You know, I really am. Okay. Who's to say how long our life is supposed to be? Fair enough. If you had a chance to go back in time and talk to little Rose, what advice would you give her? Oh my gosh, these are toughies. You should have sent these in advance. <laughs> <laughs> uh, forgive yourself for not knowing what you didn't know and be kind to yourself. Be gentler with yourself. Oh, amen. Um, and <laughs> how do you define God? God. God is love. Love is God. In the also, there's words. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Logos, you know, word, God. God, God loves words. You know, mm -hmm. if you're a wordsmith, man, you got it going on. I think God yeah. loves words. And I, I think the biggest thing, because I've been having this thing about, you know, I'm, I'm aging. <laughs> And I look in the mirror and I think, I look at pictures like, oh, you're so old. You're not attractive. And then I think, you're talking about God's creation. So mm. I think we have to be real careful the words we speak over ourselves. Uh, yes, very much so. But God is the word and words are God and words are very powerful. And finally, what is the ultimate purpose of life? Love. Love alone is life. And where can people find out more about you and your book? Books in general, but the, this book specifically. And the others are about old houses. Who cares about that nonsense? <laughs> <laughs> Plus they're all out of print now. Okay. My book is Remembering the Light, How Dying Saved My Life. And I do talk a lot about suicide, uh, uh, surviving it. Suicide, we're coming up to September, which is Suicide Prevention Month, which I personally eschew. Because every time I hear about that, I think, you know, it's it's the coulda, woulda, shoulda. If only I'd, 
If only I'd been there for my husband so he could talk out his troubles, he'd still be alive. Wrong. There is nothing I could have done to stop this, and there is nothing I could have done to make it happen. I believe with teens and young people, maybe we have a chance, maybe sometimes, maybe we have a way to talk them out of it. But when a grown person decides to do this, we need to give the survivors a break and say, you know what? There's nothing you could have done. You did everything just right. Uh, my website is temporarydeath.com because I did not come near death. I did die. And my, yeah, my book is Remembering the Light, How Dying Saved My Life. And do you have any parting messages for the audience? No, I'm grateful for the opportunity. And if uh, you can contact me through my website, but the biggest parting message I would have is if you have survived the suicide of somebody you dearly loved, you know, it doesn't matter what you had to do to survive, but um, it, 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 you learn how to live around it in time and it does get better. Just, I think you learn how to live around that spot in your heart. Rosemary, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your amazing journey with us. And I hope that this conversation helps a lot of people out there. So I appreciate you, my thank dear. You. Thank you. I want to thank Rosemary so much for coming on the show and sharing her story with all of us. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash three, four, zero. And if you've only been listening to this over podcast and you want to watch these amazing conversations, please subscribe to our YouTube channel at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, trust the journey. It is here to teach you. I'll talk to you soon.